Testing, one, two, three. I can't tell if that sounds worse or better. Like I got the micro, I bought, I went out and purposefully bought a microphone just for this and I almost think it sounds worse. But we're gonna tell right now if you can hear Nero chewing on his toy. Let's find out. And I tried to listen to that back to see if you could hear <laughs> Nero chewing on his toy. But all I could hear was Nero chewing on his toy in real life. So I don't know if it actually made it any better or any worse. So that's a beautiful thing. Alright, that seemed to fix it. That sounds much better. 10 out of 10. Way less weird and garbly. Hi, welcome to Cabernet and True Crime. I'm your host, Jana, and this is the place where good wine and true crime come together. So no intro. And uh, no no episode last week either. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> you shouldn't be shocked by now because sometimes that happens. And I always have, like, the best of intentions, and then, like, just, you know, life happens. So, like, I literally took off, um, and I don't know why I said that like that. I took off last Wednesday to prep for, like, Thanksgiving and all that, because we were hosting Thanksgiving, which is fine. And I thought, okay, cool, like, I'll clean the house, and then I'll have all this extra time to, like, record and stuff. Incorrect. Incorrect, because that didn't happen. Um... And then Thursday was like happening and obviously it was Thanksgiving and we had family out and it literally started at like 10 a.m. of getting turkey ready and doing all this stuff. So, oh, we're going to have a visitor. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, and today it's later than I wanted it to be. But at the same time, uh, I had to wait for Nero to stop walking around the house crying for whatever reason. And so now he's in here, and he thinks this microphone is something for him to have. So that's really exciting. Hang on. Wow, that was unfortunate. I just got assaulted. And he's, he's thirsting for more blood. Looking over my computer. Oh, somebody's here. Hang on. That was my dad. At some point, I will be able to get this show on the road. <laughs> and because I am moderately pressed for time as I usually am. <laughs> um, and like, I don't know why I whisper. What is, what is up? Right? Okay. We're just, we're just gonna, we're gonna be regular. We're gonna be normal, regular kind of people. Right? Okay. So I, I kind of alluded to it, not last week, but last time that we were going to be talking about Anthony Soul or the Cleveland Strangler. Um, we're going to fall back into, I don't like calling people by their, their serial killer, like their nomic monikers that the word of um like the cool thing that the fucking newspaper calls them because i don't think that's fair to the victims but so we're just gonna call him anthony soul and he's a real piece of shit so start with there uh and we're just gonna start at the beginning uh like i said before this was a blog post that i wrote and so we're gonna bring back this series of i'm just gonna make you listen to old blog posts that i don't feel got enough attention that they should have gotten when i wrote them the first time and we're just gonna go along on this ride together okay on the chilly morning of October 29th, 2009, in the Mount Pleasant area of Cleveland, Ohio, East Cleveland, um, the East Cleveland PD arrived to serve an assault warrant to a man named Anthony Soule. As we talked about last time, uh, East Cleveland is questionable at best. Uh, it has a super high, and you, if you want to hear the data, I presented it last time. I don't have it in front of me now. But statistically, East Cleveland has a much higher crime rate than the rest of Ohio and also more than the rest of the United States in general. So it's not more than the rest of it, but it, it's got an astronomically higher crime rate than surrounding areas. And not even just like crime rates, 
like violent crime rates, which is, in my opinion, a different category in its in itself. Like crime is crime, obviously, but violent crimes are specifically heinous and unfortunate. So a violent crime rate is pretty high in East Cleveland. So East Cleveland police arrive to serve the assault warrant to Anthony Soul. And when they get there, they don't find Anthony Soul. Um, unfortunately, instead, they find the decomposing bodies of Diane Turner and Talisha Fortson rotting in the open air of Anthony Soul's third floor duplex apartment. Over the next week, nine more bodies were found on the property. On September 22nd, about a month earlier, LaTundra Billups filed a police report stating that although she had willingly gone to Soul's apartment for a drink, things became violent and he'd, quote, choked and raped her as she passed out. When police arrived at the home to serve their assault warrant, um, so the home's address was 12205 Imperial Avenue, the first two bodies were found. After this gruesome discovery, Cleveland PD arranged another search warrant, um, so the original finding of the first two bodies. They um, found another search warrant, and this one included the entire county. Oh, sorry, I this dog is very distracting to me. He's got a blanket, and he's walking around the house, and now he's trying to hump it, so my apologies. Um, so after the first discovery, Cleveland PD arranged another search warrant, and this one included the county coroner and cadaver dogs. On Halloween 2009, Soul was seen on Mount Auburn Avenue, recognized by someone who had seen the news broadcasts. Police were notified of the sighting, and he was arrested after a two-day manhunt. Soul was only three blocks away from the crime scene. On November 3rd, Police obtained another search warrant and this time arranged for a backhoe to be brought to the property. Five more corpses were uncovered and eventually identified as Michelle Mason, Kim Smith, Amelda Hunter, Tanya Carmichael, and Crystal Dozier. With the previously discovered bodies found in the house on the second search, the body count on Soul's property climbed to 11 with two more bodies in the living room of the apartment, Tashana Culver and Nancy Cobb and also a body located under the stairs and a skull wrapped in plastic in a bucket in the basement. These women were later identified as Janice Webb and LaShanda Long, respectively. About a month before this horrific discovery, a naked woman had fallen out of Seoul's third-story window, caught on the neighborhood's, uh, caught on a neighbor's surveillance tapes. Seoul appeared, also naked, coming out from the home and continuing to fight her outside. This altercation was stopped by passersby and police were notified, but the woman's identity remains a secret as the woman never pressed charges. Also in the timeline leading up to the discovery, a local store owner, I don't know why that came out weird, a local store owner uh, mentioned that Soul's purchases were becoming increasingly weird, including a great number of trash bags as well as white extension cords. In his neighborhood, Anthony Soule was regarded as a likable man, always chatty with the neighbors, and often had cookouts. He had been noted as a neighborly fixture and had regulars who would come over to play chess and drink 40s of King Cobra, which is a quote. Uh, King Cobra, if you've never heard of it, is a cheap malt liquor known for its high alcohol content. I can say that I've never had a King Cobra, um, but I have heard of it before. His parties often took place in his third floor apartment, which his landlady's stepmother couldn't reach due to immobility and old age. Although Soul seemed nice within his community, the man had a dark past. And um, it's not like an apartment building, um, and I don't know if these are popular everywhere, but Cleveland and that kind of surrounding area is known for taking really large. So if you think like back, 
probably the 1800s, I would guess. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but these really large houses often get sectioned off into duplexes or triplexes. So um, not even just usually a side-by-side -side duplex, normally an up-down duplex. So I would assume he had the attic of this house was just his own in his own apartment. Which I've actually known people who have lived on like the third story of a house. Um, they're actually pretty nice apartments. They're spacious. They're bigger than you think they'd be. Um, but so... He probably, he lived in this house. Uh, the house isn't there anymore, just in case you're curious. Uh, it got torn down and I think made it into a park um, for people to go to and mourn the loss of these victims. And it's interesting to me because I think it's been a common theme in the last couple episodes is the whole concept of usually, would you know if somebody was being weird? Would you know if your neighbor was a serial killer or not? And I, I think based off of this information, it doesn't seem like Anthony's soul was one of those people that you could have called out beforehand. And to my knowledge, though, from what I've read about it, because um, I read the, the book um, about Ariel Castro, and it was kind of the same thing, but I, I think people were shocked because he was a school bus driver. Ariel Castro was a school bus driver. And for all intents and purposes, if you didn't know him, you would have thought he was a regular, like a pretty normal guy. Um, I bet you his ex-wife has a lot of different things to say about that. But I mean... If you're not close to these people and they're just tertiary relationships, so you might not know. But I think, well, I mean, there's a reason why Anthony Soul was single. Because obviously if he had um, a significant other, I think they would have been aware of this. You know, it wouldn't have been such a, it wouldn't have passed by under the radar. But it seemed, you know, like he was a likable person. So would you have known? Because if I ever found out that one of my friends or people that I knew was found guilty of these just crazy and awful crimes against humanity you know really just your friends i would think i would go and think back in my head of every single interaction we've ever had to say what i have known and it sounds like with anthony soul and probably ariel castro i mean i don't know if people would have noticed i don't know if people would have known so i think that's it's a mind fuck it's a mind fuck for me that people are out there killing other people that's just crazy to me just because the concept of taking another human life is just wild in its own essence. But, like, the fact that, like, I mean, that would just be so crazy to, to think that you you had cookouts with this person. You were at this person's house drinking beer. You were out at this person's house doing such regular, mundane activities. And then in their private life, they're a monster. Like, that's just that. In my brain, I cannot compute that. So Anthony's soul, back to his dark past. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. Anthony Soule grew up in East Cleveland and was one of seven children raised by a single mother named Claudia Garrison. She went by Gertrude. Uh, after the death of one of Soule's siblings, several children moved into the house with Soule's mother, grandmother, Anthony himself, and two of his siblings. According to one of Soule's nieces, uh, her time in the Page Avenue home was nothing short of hell. She said that Garrison, uh, the grand or the mom, Anthony Soule's mom, began abusing the children while Soul and his siblings watched. Garrison had forced her to strip naked and subsequently beat her with electrical cords. According to family, Soul began raping his niece almost daily for two years straight, forcing her to have sex with him over the threat of violence. She was 10 and Anthony Soul was 11. Five years after this abuse, Soul appeared to have turned over a new leaf and at the age of 18, he served in the U.S. Marines and was highly successful and well-regarded. He earned several awards and promotions during his years there and was ultimately discharged as a corporal. His success in the Marines uh, is the only highlight of Soul's life. 
And that's another aspect of that too, though, right? So we had this troubled past and, you know, we just, we just saw this with Michael Madison. Anthony Soule's past and Michael Madison's past are nearly identical. Like their childhoods are very similar. So, but see that Michael Madison um, never turned it around. He went straight into a life of violent crimes, but Anthony Soule did some time, not did some time, but he, he served in the military. So that, that's a different, you know, a veer in the path. And, you know, Anthony Soule could have gone on to live not a beautiful life, maybe, I don't know, but he could have gone on to not live this path that he's chosen. And it's crazy to just think of like the little actions and little things that happen to you in life. And obviously child abuse is not a little thing and that's not what I'm implying, but like little decisions that we make along the way really can change the entire outcome of your life. And that's just another crazy thing to me. But, you know, after he was successful in the Marines and after his service, which spanned from 1978 to 1985, he finds himself in a lot of trouble. In 1989, a woman had willingly gone to Soul's house and when she tried to leave, he bound her hands and feet and gagged her with a rag. Anthony Soul was charged with kidnapping, attempted rape, and torture of a woman. He pled guilty to the attempted rape charge and in 1990 was sentenced to 15 years in jail. From his release on, Soul was registered as a sex offender and police often stopped by his home. However, with no just cause or reason to enter his home, they never knew of the horrors that were occurring inside. So that's another thing too. Anthony Soul went unnoticed for a lot of reasons. Um, in the same aspect, so with, with all the Ariel Castro um, thing that happened, and I don't know if you guys really have even done, I don't know if you, how much you know about the case or not, but this is from my knowledge. So Ariel Castro was the guy from Cleveland who kept three women in his basement for, I think, 11 years, 12 years. Um, he kidnapped them and kept them in his basement. They all survived, um, and they all live normal lives now. They all got out. Um, one is actually a newscaster. for I think she, she has a segment on the news every night, which is pretty cool, and one wrote a book. So, that, I mean, they're, they're healing is the best way to put that. But, you know, there was a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, there were, there were neighbors that after the fact had said, oh, yeah, you know, we noticed naked women in the back of Ariel Castro's yard. There were women on leashes in the backyard of uh, Ariel Castro's house. And the, the question was, well, why didn't anybody call the police? Well, they did. There were people who did call the police and the police were like, uh, just people on drugs in the yard or some, you know, people being weird because the area that it was happening in, happening in is crime ridden. There's crimes out there. So like, there's the thing is like people in that street and people in that neighborhood are either calling the cops and being ignored because there's more serious crimes happening. And like, I mean, this could just be chalked up to people being weird in the backyard. How are the police going to know? Or there's people who notice that stuff was happening and they're choosing to not act upon it because they themselves are doing crime. So why would you want the cops in your neighborhood investigating this when you yourself are doing crimes, right? So it, it becomes a real catch-22 because these crimes happen. We find out about them. They hit the news and people, even in the neighborhood, I'm sure there's people who are like, why did nobody do anything? Why did nobody stop anything? But then there's the caveat of, what could the police have done in the same point in time, right? Like, you want to point your finger somewhere, but, I mean, first of all, the only place you can point your finger is at the fucking monster doing these things, so the criminal doing these things is the first person you should point your finger at. But, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, 
everybody wants to figure out where did where did this system go wrong? And there's a lot of places where the system goes wrong. And I mean, this is kind of a case too, right? Okay, you can know Anthony Soule is a registered sex offender. That's fine. I mean, it's not obviously not fine, but like you can know he's on the list if you're a cop, right? And if you're a police officer, you know he's on the list. But unless some something's happening, unless people are calling the cops, unless people are reporting these crimes, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you they don't have just because you're on a list, just if you're a sex offender, right? And just because you're on a list doesn't mean the police can just kick down your door and check on you. There has to be some type of reason for them to be there. So if Anthony Soul is doing all this very privately and very secretly and like people aren't suspicious of what he's up to, the police can't just go there and check. So yeah, I mean, there's no reason for them to be there. There's no reason for them to know what's going on and there's no reason for them to stop him. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle and I don't really know how you how you fix that. I don't I don't think there is a legal or just way to do that aside from people need to stop killing people. How about that? That seems like a great place to start. Don't kidnap people and keep them in your house and then murder them. Like that's that's the way to stop this. So, there's another tangent. Sorry. Uh, when Soul was released from prison in 2005, he started a dating profile on alts.com. It's a site for fetish seekers. I don't know that on my own. Um, that's what Google said. Uh, he said that he was a dominator. I need to remember to turn this on do not disturb because my dad just called me and it stopped everything. I don't know where I was. Oh, alt.com. He said he was a dominator looking for a slave to train. I don't know if you heard that or not. He was active on this website until his ultimate arrest in 2009. He also dated Cleveland Mayor Frank G. Jackson's niece, Lori Frazier. She was his living girlfriend for a part of Soul's active killing career and said that she had noticed the smell emanating from his home but believed Soul's lie that the smell was from his mother. She moved out sometime in 2008. So the smell from all of this, uh, it began plaguing the neighborhood around 2007 and at this time soul's mother was living with him at the imperial avenue house neighbors often complained about the smell and presumed to be so this is like the this is another crazy story so at this time soul's mother was living with him cool uh neighbors in the neighborhood complained about the smell and thought it was coming from ray's sausage which was a meat supplier next door to soul's home the owner of Ray's spent $30,000 in renovations to his plant to relieve the community of the smell, but to no avail because the smell always persisted. So you've got just this, this odor that is, I mean, not even plaguing the house, plaguing the neighborhood. And it's so crazy that like, yeah, people were thinking it was coming from this meat factory. And it's just the, the thought of that is crazy. It's crazy. So that's kind of the background, and I want to talk about the victims, the most important most important people in this, because we don't give a fuck about Anthony Soul. He's a trash person. We care about the victims. So Crystal Dozier was last seen on May seventeenth, two thousand seven. The thirty-five year old mother of seven was the first to go missing. She was a known addict in the neighborhood and was known to party with Anthony Soul, although she was never considered um, he was never considered her boyfriend. 
Dozier's family said that they put posters up after the disappearance, but more often than not, they disappeared. Family had heard tips about a home on Imperial Avenue, but when they went to check, they found nothing. There were only a few houses down, or they were only a few houses down from Souls. Her body was ultimately discovered on November 3rd in a shallow grave by the back porch in Souls yard. Her body was identified in, on November 8th, 2009. Tashana Culver was last seen on June in June of 2008. The 31-year-old often drifted in and out of her family's life and was not reported missing. She had been homeless for two months before moving into her home on East 64th and Bundy Drive, which is about three and a half miles from Seoul's home. She was a known addict and sex worker and had a prison record. Her body was found in the second of the three searches in a crawl space on the third floor. She was identified on November 5th, 2009. LaShonda Long was last seen in August of 2008 and at the age of 17 had three children but was deemed unfit to raise them due to her drug use. At the age of 25, she was the youngest of all Souls victims. Her skull was found wrapped in plastic and shoved into a bucket in Souls' basement. She was the last one to be identified, although the remainder of her body was never found. Tanya Carmichael was last seen on November 10th, 2008. She was 53 years old when she went missing. Her remains were the first to be identified. Carmichael's life had been spent in a struggle of trying to be successful, trying to be a successful single mother and the life of the party, but ultimately the party got her. She became consumed by her drug addiction and spent time in prison for drug charges. Her body was found in one of the shallow graves in Seoul's backyard. It had been found by a cadaver dog and she was identified on November 5th. Michelle Mason went missing on October 8th, 2008. She was a known heroin addict, but when she became infected with HIV from intravenous drug use, she quit. Ultimately, however, she replaced her addiction with heroin with crack cocaine. She was 45 years old when she went missing. Her body was also found in the backyard of Soul's home. Her apartment was located very close to Soul's home, and family suspects she met him while walking around the neighborhood. Kim Smith was a known crack cocaine addict. Her body was one of five located in Soul's backyard. She was the only victim that wasn't a mother, although she'd been the primary caretaker for her wheelchair-bound father. She was last seen three days before her 44th birthday, January 17, 2009. Nancy Cobb was 43 years old when she went missing. She was found in Seoul's living room. She had befriended Seoul, although she was constantly fighting her battle with drugs and in and out of prison. She had gone missing on April 24, 2009. Her body was identified on November 6, and it was wrapped in plastic on the third floor. Amelda Hunter had a hard life growing up and turned to drugs for solace. She was a frequent guest to uh, 12205 Imperial Avenue and was friendly with Seoul. She disappeared in the spring of 2009. She had disappeared numerous times before and her family was not surprised when she disappeared again. Her family, uh, her sister had vaguely remembered visiting the Imperial Avenue home once before but did not remember Seoul. She was found buried in a shallow grave along with her cousin, Crystal Dozier. She was 47 years old and identified on November 8, 2009. Janice Webb was a 48-year-old crack cocaine addict. She disappeared on June 3, 2009, and her family filed a missing persons report a month later. She was found in a shallow grave under the staircase in Seoul's basement underneath a large pile of dirt. Talisha Fortson was also seen in June of 2009. She was reported missing to the East Cleveland Police Department when bodies were discovered in the home. Her body was found in the living room, and she was identified on November 5, 2009.
Diane Turner, the final of Soul's victims, disappeared in September of 2009. Her body was found in Soul's living room. It took more than a month to identify her as finding family DNA to compare to was difficult. After the discoveries of uh, and Soul's arrest and several delays, Soul's day in court finally came and his trial started on June 6, 2011. I'm sure while reading that, um, well, I guess while you're listening to that, you've noticed that there was a, a certain trend between the victims. Um, obviously, most of them had uh, struggled with drug addiction. And in my opinion, I don't don't think being a drug addict makes you a bad person because it doesn't. You're not a bad person. You have a, a problem. You know, you you struggle with an illness. You found yourself in a situation that um, you didn't need to be in, and it is what it is. Um, people in my family have struggled with drug addictions, and it has cost one of them their life. And so I, I definitely, that's a very sensitive subject for me. Uh, but I don't, this because you're a drug addict, drug addict does not mean you're a bad person. And it certainly doesn't mean you deserve to die. And it doesn't mean that you're any less of a person because you struggle with problems. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I that that hits a spot. I, I was reading an article once. It was like, oh, well, they were just druggies. Well, they weren't just druggies. They were people. They were people and they had families. And they had families that cared about them. And that's I, that makes me sick to think that like people out there have that opinion. Um, you know, they have their issues and they are what they are. Everybody has issues. And I don't think one person's life matters any less because they struggle with addiction or problems like that. So um, that's my two cents on that. So after the bodies were found, sorry, that was heavy. <laughs> this whole thing is heavy. Um, during the trial, uh, Soul's attorney argued that the medical examiner wouldn't know how the girls died due to, due to the decon decomposition and the toxicology evidence that showed drugs in at least one woman's report. The medical examiner shot this theory down quickly, stating that the majority of women were found naked from the waist down, bound at the neck and hands, and hidden or buried in shallow graves, very clearly showing homicidal intent. Seven of the bodies had ligatures around their necks and were determined to have died by ligature strangulation, evidence being a fractured hyoid bone in their necks. If you've seen like forensic files or whatever, they could tell you got a tiny little neck, tiny little neck, sorry, you've got a tiny little bone um, kind of behind your trachea in your neck. And if you've been strangled, a lot of the times that bone breaks. Um, and that's, there's only one way to break that bone. And that's it. You've been strangled of by some type. Um, so the those people who, those women who died from ligature strangulation were Carmichael Cobbs, Dozier, Fortson, Hunter, Mason, and Webb. Long, Smith, and Turner were killed by homicidal violence of an undetermined type. Carmichael Cobbs, Culver, Dozier, Smith, and Webb all had bindings or the remains of bindings around their wrists or ankles. From the court trials and from his interrogation tapes, Sol tried to say that he would hear a voice talking about bad people and that he would black out. He would have dreams of strangling these women and he stated that he would wake up in the morning and his partner for that evening had left without saying goodbye. After these dreams, he claimed to be tired, as if he'd been working. He dreamed that he supposed he was supposed to be a punisher, and that the women needed to be punished because they were cons who tried to hustle him out of money and drugs. These are his words, not mine. He claimed that the voice in his head told him that he this was what he was supposed to do. It's like I was supposed to rape these girls. Also his words, not mine. He admitted that all the women found in his house were bad, 
and that he was able to give descriptions of some of the victims, although he never confessed to being the man who murdered them. Sowell was ultimately convicted on July 22, 2011 of 82 charges, including aggravated murder, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with evidence. He was also found guilty in three cases of attempted murder. Sowell's attorney was expected to call 28 witnesses to the stand in an attempt to humanize him and convince the jury to avoid a death penalty. In Sowell's defense, his attorney stated that Sowell's childhood trauma and abuse from living with his mother was part in was in part the cause of his crimes. Sowell's niece combated the theory, saying that Sowell himself was among the abusers, not one of the abused. Sowell was ultimately given the death penalty, and this is old. Uh, he actually passed away not that long ago in prison because uh, he was um, actively filing appeals to serve life in prison, so like to not get the death penalty. He obviously had no success with that. He was still on death row when he died of an undetermined terminal illness. That's what it was what it was listed as. Um, I don't remember. Okay, I looked it up because I wasn't sure when he died. So Anthony Soule actually died on February 8th, uh, 2021. He was 61 years old. Um, like I said, he died of some weird terminal illness. They didn't specify, I don't think. Uh, yeah. End-of-life care for an unspecified terminal illness is what the Wikipedia says. So, there you go. Um, there's a couple of very, not interesting, but if you want to see some, like, detailed um, documentaries, there are a couple out there. Um, it was on Investigation Discovery on the show Killer Instinct. It was on a documentary film called Unseen. And I think I've seen both of these. He's also on the Oxygen Snapped. Um, five women who survived the kidnappings are on that show. I haven't seen that, but it's on my list to watch. It looks really interesting. And I'd like to hear from those people. Um, yeah, also, like I said before, the property that he lived on was demolished. The house was demolished. And on July 16th, 2021, they, um, it's a garden of 11 Angels Memorial um, on that property. And it was dedicated on November 6th, 2021. Um, in the aftermath of the conviction, East Cleveland police said they were looking into several cold cases, most of which were um, death by strangulation, which was Soul's MO. Um, and these random cases of uh, stranglings and death, they stopped once he was originally arrested in 1989. Um, this case also made a large difference in how the Cleveland PD handles missing persons cases as a backlash from residents and social or in local media. Um, this case can actually be found on my website, <laughs> cavernayandtruecrime.com, if you wanted to read it for yourself. And I have, like, links, um, on here of where I got all my information, all my research. Um, and that's going to be happening more often as I update the website. There will be places, so if you want to dig into more information, because obviously my podcast is moderately paraphrased. Um, I can't include everything that I find on the internet. These would be so long. Um, so if you ever wanted to look into more information or get more information on these, I have links on the website so you can click those. And um, with that, that's that's the episode. Um, and I guess I, I'm not a guess. I'm making a promise to myself and to you. I will see you next week.